Uh, I wasn't uh, a perfect child when I was growing up, uh, but in the eyes of my mother, uh, I was actually very close to perfection. Uh, if you knew my mother, you'd know that that was, was the truth. Uh, she supported me. She believed in me uh, to a point that I say would be a fault, to, to a fault. Rather than holding me accountable when my behavior didn't measure up, she would often defend me and justify uh, my actions. And it leads to swearing in sermons, right? Where that, that's where that goes. Long before the terms helicopter parent, you know, where we hover over our children or lawnmower parents where we clear the path and make it smooth so there's no obstacles for them. Before those terms were uh, ever common in our culture, my mother lived those out every single day of my life. Now, there was one time I got in trouble at school and I got to tell you, I was wrong. Like, I did the wrong thing. I misbehaved. It was my fault. And in fact, I even told her that. I said, Mom, it's my bad. I did it. I did the wrong thing. And, but that, that didn't matter. My efforts to point out my sin failed, and she called the principal, and she reamed him out. I, I mean, she's, she was a, you know, she, she was that person. There was no way that her boy could, should be held responsible for, for this behavior. That was, that was my mom. Now, we often see two basic responses to people who have made poor choices, who are living um, in a manner deemed to be outside of God's intentions. The first is my mother's approach. It's, it's no big deal. There's no accountability required in this situation. Let's just not make a fuss about it. Let's just, you know, let's just not draw attention to it. Of course, the second one is more of a legalistic approach that results in, in being very critical, very judgmental, and, and focused on being punitive. I believe in our scripture today, there are actually, we're actually presented with a more balanced approach from Jesus himself. Last week, we launched a new series, which we've entitled Critical Questions. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be considering some of these questions that Jesus asked in John's gospel to different people that he encountered. And we're going to talk specifically about how those questions relate to us. So last week, we dealt with the question, what do you want? Today's question is, where are they? Where are they? Jesus asked this question to the woman caught in adultery, in the act of adultery, about her accusers. And he didn't ask it to condemn the woman's obvious sin. That's not why he's asking her. But he, he's asking the question to demonstrate and have an opportunity to demonstrate compassion to her and to offer her mercy. And so what we're going to see today is that Jesus saves us because he saved her life. He saved her life. Jesus saves us not because he accepts our behavior, but because he wants to give us the opportunity to change. And so our scripture today, John 8, 2 to 11, was read. Thank you, Elaine, for doing that. And so if you want to follow along, uh, feel free to do that. The first thing I want to look at is revealing character. Our scripture today takes place in Jerusalem, the holy city, in the temple courts, actually. 
the physical location where God strategically chose to meet with his people. It's dawn, early morning. Large crowds have already gathered around, and Jesus is there, and they've gathered around Jesus, and he's sitting in the midst of them, and he's teaching them. And the teaching is suddenly interrupted when the teachers of the law and the Pharisees push their way into the center of the, of the crowd and present before Jesus and all of these people who have gathered this woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. They've pushed her into the center. As they presented her to Jesus, they quoted the Old Testament law of Moses that said that if a woman was caught in adultery, she should be stoned to death. And so they said, we would like your opinion on this. We'd like some direction from you. We'd like you to to speak to this dilemma that we have, should we carry out the law of Moses and kill her, or should we not? Now, the issue of character is front and center in this part of the story. Of course, obviously, it's the woman's character, first of all. This is, you know, not gossip. This is not someone told someone who told someone and and there's this thought that maybe she's doing something wrong. It's not gossip. She was caught in the very act of adultery. She broke the law of Moses. She's guilty. There's no question. She's a woman of questionable character. And she knew that she was wrong. The second character that's being questioned here is Jesus' character. We're told that this incident is actually not really about the woman at all. She's a pawn. She's an instrument. She's she's just being used to discredit Jesus, to create a trap for him, and to discredit his, his honor. Now, the main responsibility of the scribes and the Pharisees was to protect the integrity of the law of Moses and to teach people, okay, here's what Moses said. Now, here's what this looks like in everyday life. And so, in order to help you do that, we're going to create all these different laws. So, so, the law of Moses said, you know, to respect the Sabbath and keep it holy. So, they created 39 laws that help you do that. That was how they functioned. And the truth is, Jesus broke a lot of their laws. He broke a lot of their laws. And so his character is being questioned. Jesus' action in saying to sinners, your sins are forgiven, and and it it threatened the authority of the religious leaders in all of their efforts. And so they want to shame and humiliate him and destroy his character. And then, of course, there's the religious leaders. They were convinced they were right. They were motivated by power. They wanted to elevate themselves. They wanted to protect their system. They wanted to protect what they had created. And the whole thing reeked of a setup. Actually, the law of Moses didn't say that a woman caught in adultery should be stoned. It said a woman and a man caught in adultery, both should be stoned. The law required both. Where was the man? If she was caught in the very act, where was the man? Did he conveniently escape 
They wanted her to pay for her sins and the sins of the man involved. Me too should have started back here. Because she's bearing the brunt of her pain and his wrongdoing. And so they humiliated her. They shamed her by walking her out, standing in front of this crowd. Maybe in this crowd are family members and friends and people who know you. Maybe she has kids. We don't know the scenario, but they're shaming her. They're humiliating her by making her stand in public while her personal sins are exposed for all of them to see. They are so focused on the perceived sins of others that they can't even see their own. Revealing character. A lot is revealed about character. Secondly, reflective consideration. Jesus is faced with a perceived dilemma. If he lets her walk away without punishment, he will be seen by the crowd and the religious establishment as someone who doesn't keep the laws of Moses. I mean, it's one thing not to keep the laws of the Pharisees, but wow, you're going to mess with the laws of Moses? On the other hand, if he condones the stoning, he's going to be contradicting his own teaching of grace and forgiveness that they've been hearing and seeing in his ministry, and he's also going to run the risk of creating trouble with the Roman authorities because the Jews... That's why they went to to the Roman authorities and Pilate to get Jesus crucified. They didn't have the authority to order someone to death. And if Jesus did that, now he's going to be in trouble with the Roman authorities. And so it's a situation where they've trapped him. They think they have him because there's a dilemma here and he loses in whatever he does. And so how does Jesus respond? He bends over. And he begins to write on the ground with his finger. Now, we have no idea what he was writing. We really don't. We, we don't know what he was writing, and we don't know what relevance it might have, have on this particular dilemma. We can surmise, but we really don't know because we're not told. We do know in Exodus, it says that the finger of God wrote the law of Moses. Perhaps Jesus is listing the other laws of Moses, other sins that have been lived in the lives and committed in the lives of those who are accusing her. Maybe he's writing them on the ground. We don't know. But he's obviously writing something. Meanwhile, while he's writing, they continue to badger him for an answer. So, you know, it's like when your kid wants to go, can I go? Can I go? Let me think about it. Okay, can I go? Can I go? They're badgering him. They want an answer. What do, you, what do you want to do? And he's delaying, and his delayed response is creating this impatience in them. Well, after a period of time, Jesus straightened up, it says, and he put the dilemma back on his accusers. He said, here's what we're going to do. If any one of you is without sin... You can cast the first stone. You can get this started. The one of you is without sin. Why don't you, why don't you get it started? And we'll, we'll throw stones at her and we'll, we'll get this moving. 
And we're told with that, he stooped again and continued to write on the ground. And as he's doing that, John tells us that we're told that the accusers began to go away one at a time. And I love this, beginning with the older first. Hmm. Is it possible that the older you live, the more sins you have? I've met a lot of older people with a lot of sin. Or perhaps they're just more self-aware. And they realize rather quickly, yeah, I'm mature enough to see here that who am I to start this? Jesus is not rejecting the law. What Jesus is rejecting is using the law as an excuse for personal spiritual gain. And so it became obvious that she, the adulterous woman, was not the only sinner in the crowd. Thirdly, restorative compassion. I love the final scene of the story. In the final scene of the story, there's only two people left. Jesus and the woman who was standing before him, still standing there alone. Only two. Ironically, both of whom had been accused of wrongdoing by the religious establishment. The only two left were the perceived sinners. And he looked up from the ground and he asked her, he says, woman, where are they? Your accusers, where, where are they? Has, has no one condemned you? It's important to note that the use of the word woman here is not a derogatory address. I would not suggest that any of you men start doing that. It will not end well for you. But... In this context, in the culture of the day, in the language that's being used, this is actually an endearing term, not a derogatory term. We see it used in John's gospel in a couple of places. Jesus is on the cross. He looks down. He sees his mom. And he says, woman, you know, behold your son. Then ask the disciple, can you take care of her? When Mary Magdalene is at the tomb, we, we looked at this on Easter Sunday, when she's standing there and just bewildered and, and broken, and he said, woman, who are you looking for? These are endearing terms. These are, these are, these are kind terms. She said, where are they? He says, where are they? Where, did no one condemn you? And she said, no, no one did. Not one of them. And he said, neither do I. Now go and leave your life of sin. I want us to notice that Jesus never questioned her on the charges. He didn't attempt to validate the facts. He said, okay, let's walk through this. Where were you? Who were you with? What was happening at the time? When did they come in? Can you just help me with the facts? He never asked those questions. He didn't try to understand things from his perspective. He didn't say, so tell me, you must be in a loveless marriage. Talk to me about how your husband treats you. 
Talk to me what you've been through, why you're hurting. No one pays attention to you. No one's kind. No one gives you affection. Yes, you must, you must deserve to, to find love somewhere else. He didn't, he didn't try to understand things from her perspective because there was just one point here. She's guilty. She's guilty. There's no question. She was caught in the act of adultery. She was sinning. There's, there's no need for all of that other stuff. When Jesus said to her, where are they? He's not trying to find out where they were. He knew where they, le- they were. He knew why they left. He's asking her because he's trying to create an opportunity now to follow up in this moment and offer her something that she needs more than anything, which is mercy, grace. In John 1.17, I love this scripture, just a few chapters before, it states, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This incident is a perfect example of the truth of that ministry statement of Jesus. Jesus' approach was to show mercy and call for real life change. The religious leaders brought the woman to Jesus in order to condemn both her and him and to at the same time elevate themselves. This is an honor culture. In an honor culture, the way you gain honor is to take it from someone else. Their goal was, let's trap this woman, let's bring her to Jesus, let's discredit him in front of all of those who are listening to him, who are being taught by him, and in that process, his honor will fade and we'll take more for ourselves. But the story ends very different. The story ends with those who are elevated are now humiliated And those who were humiliated are now elevated. It's interesting that that's happened because in Luke's gospel, when Mary is told she's going to give birth to the Messiah, and she goes into this prophetic song, she talks about that kings and those in authority will be humbled and those who are nothing will be elevated. Simeon in the temple says, this little baby I'm holding in my arm is going to be responsible for the rising and falling in Israel. Those who are up are coming down, and those who are down are going to come up. And we see this so beautifully captured as Jesus is standing alone with this woman. Because in a moment, humiliation is shifted to victory. There are two important observations that I'd like to draw from this passage today. The first thing is, sin matters. Sin matters. One current trend that we can easily observe is a trend towards minimizing the significance of sin. To minimize the significance of sin and the impact of sin in our lives is to bring a gross disservice to the kingdom of God, to genuine relationship with Jesus, and a great disservice to ourselves. Sin in our lives matters. Sin matters. Because sin is destructive. Sin destroys people's lives. 
Sin puts people in bondage. Sin destroys marriages. Sin breaks up families. Sin ruins relationships. Sin destroys reputations. Sin robs us of our purpose, our potential, our future. Sin matters. Now, sometimes sinful behavior is left unchecked because, well, it's awkward to confront it. It's intimidating. It's embarrassing. It's, it's just better just to, to leave things alone, we think. Sometimes sinful behavior is excused because blame is placed on others for it. You know, not, lots of us grew up in dysfunctional homes. Lots of us grew up with parents who didn't know how to parent right. Lots of us grew up in environments where we were mistreated and, 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 and our self-esteem was crumbled and people hurt us and, and different things. A lot of us grew up that way. But we can't use that as a reason to behave in a certain way. We can't excuse our behavior because, well, you need to understand the way I was raised. You, if you knew my parents, if you knew the home I grew up in, if you knew their demands, their expectations, and all of that stuff, no. No. Or if you knew the things that happened along the way, if you knew the things that I went through, if you knew how someone treated me, if you knew how my husband treats me or my wife treats me or, or doesn't provide or does provide or, or any of that, all of these things can be excuses for our sin. But the truth is, no one is responsible for the sin in our lives other than us. If it's in our lives, it's our responsibility. We can't blame somebody else for our sin. If it is in us, it's our responsibility. And like the woman in our story, Jesus is calling us to leave our lives of sin, to deal with the sin in our lives because sin matters. It really matters. Secondly, grace matters. Condemnation has been a part of spirituality from the very beginning. It has always been with us. It was with Adam, with Cain and Abel, and it's with us this morning. Condemnation has always been a part of spirituality. It's always been with us. It is very easy in the pursuit of spirituality to take on the role of evaluating, judging, and condemning the lives of other people while at the same time failing to see our own shortcomings. In our well-meaning attempts to protect what we deem to be spiritually important, we can develop an entitlement to evaluating those that we consider to not be measuring up to the standard. We do that all the time. We look in culture and we see people's lifestyles. We see decisions. We, we see, you know, messages they're promoting. And 
and they're not measuring up, and we can, we can become condemning, judgmental. I want to remind us today of what Jesus himself said in John 3, verse 17. He makes it very clear what he didn't come to do. Jesus says, here's what I didn't come to do. I didn't come to condemn the world. Hmm. Good thing, because the rest of us just picked that up for him. He didn't come to condemn the world. He said, that's not why I'm here. I want you to understand I'm not here to condemn this sinful, broken world. I'm here to save it, to redeem it. In fact, the Bible tells us very clearly that condemning is Satan's role. He's the accuser of the brethren. He even has a plaque on his door. Satan, accuser of the brethren. When we engage in condemning, we're actually carrying out his work. Ouch. Well, if that's his job description and Jesus said, it's not mine and we're doing it, well, who are we helping? Condemning points out the sickness, but grace provides the cure. We have observed in the North American context over the past few decades now, the church engaging in the political arena in an attempt to protect spiritual values. The belief is that if the church can gain political power, if the church can gain political influence, that that will advance and protect the church's values. It will create laws and overturn laws and and protect the church's values. Well, after about three decades or more of that, I believe the result instead is a creation of a culture a creation of a church culture that's declining in grace and love for people. Martin Luther King said, power without love is reckless. We're called to change lives, not laws. Legislated morality, legislated spirituality is not what Jesus envisioned for the kingdom of God. Truthfully, what I have observed as I read social media posts, as I'm a part of these you know, mass email mailouts, and if you include me in those, I will very quickly ask you not to include me in those is that there are things being written by Christians, circulated by Christians, about other religions and about other people whose lifestyles are contrary to ours and contrary to what we believe the Bible teaches. And what is being circulated and what is being written and what is being said, folks, it's nothing short of hate speech. It's hate speech. When I read something from someone who is a, quote, Christian, And I just read it, my heart breaks. I'm thinking, how can you do this? This is hate. It's hate. And there's no room for it in the kingdom of God. We are called to love above everything else. And not just in our words, but in our 
actions. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world because you know what? The world didn't need more condemnation. The world needed grace. The world needed love. The the world needed mercy. The world had enough condemnation to take it through his existence. And the truth is, you and I, we don't need more condemnation. I mean, how many of you here this morning would raise your hand and say, I wish people would criticize me more? How many would you like to say, I wish more people judged me? I wish more people misunderstood my motives. I wish more people pointed out my sins and made me feel ashamed. How many of you here would like that? Exactly. But how many of you would say, I need more grace. I need more people to love me just as I am. I need more people to accept me. I need more people to show me mercy. I need people to be patient with me and kind. Most of us would say, yes, yes, sign me up. Don't make me wait till Mother's Day to be kind to my mother. No, let's do it every day. Let's not wait for pastor appreciation. Does that even exist anymore? I don't even know. There's a reason I don't know. So... Don't save it. (laughs) If you're thinking that I'm lacking in condemnation, folks, I got lots of it. Lots of it. But I'm a little short on the need for grace, mercy, and love. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you know, the wedding chapter, Paul writes, Did you guys get the sarcasm in that? Paul writes this. This is the message. If I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy, but don't love, I am nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all of the mysteries and making everything as plain as day. And I have faith that says to the mountain, jump, and it jumps. But I don't love, I'm nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor, and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, no matter what I believe, no matter what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. I hate reading these passages because they're so convicting. They hit me right where I live. But they're true because grace matters. Mercy matters. Love matters. I'm going to invite our worship team back this morning. I believe Jesus is asking all of us today, where are they? Where are they? And he's asking this question not to condemn us, but as an opportunity to offer us mercy so we can leave our sin behind And live for him. He's asking not because 
he accepts our behavior as we are, but because he wants to give us an opportunity to change. I mean, the truth is Jesus would be justified in condemning us. But that's not why he came. He came to restore us. And our place, our role in his kingdom is to carry on his work. The work he began. The way he did it. Grace and truth. Not condemnation. I pray to God that as I look back on my life, of all of the different titles and adjectives that could be used of me, they won't be one of them. I don't ever want to be found in the they. The accusers. Those so committed to protecting spirituality that they defile the very heart of God in the process. May we never be they. And if we are ones who have been the focus of they, maybe they're right. Maybe there is stuff in you. Maybe there's stuff in me. But it's not about condemning. It's about making the choice to live different. Because repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry. The word repentance means I'm going to stop walking on this road and I'm going to start walking on this one. We're led to believe that that's what happened in this story as this woman walked away from her one-on-one meeting with Jesus. She walked in an adulterer, but she walked away redeemed. Would you stand with me this morning? We're going to wrap things up a little bit different this morning. I'm going to have the worship team. I'm going to have Tyler lead us in a song. And I want us, as we're doing that, to allow the Holy Spirit to help us reflect on our own lives. Maybe we're here this morning, and if we could be those people who are pushed to the front and exposed in front of everybody, if people only knew what really is going on in our lives, it would be shaming and humiliating. And maybe there's things that we need to give to God this morning and, and, and listen to the words of Jesus and say, okay, I'm going to stop sinning. I'm going to leave my life of sin and I'm going to be free. And maybe in those moments of reflection this morning, the Holy Spirit is going to kind of poke his finger in, in your eye and say, you know what? You can be a little condemning at times. You can be so passionate about what you believe that you destroy people along the way. You're so passionate for me that you're actually hurting the people I want to reach. You need to stop being the condemner. You need to stop working for the wrong side and you need to start being someone who comes to redeem. I'm not going to point that out in your life this morning for obvious reasons because that would kind of go against everything I've already said. It's the Holy Spirit's job. We just need to listen. So can we use this next moment as we worship as an invitation for the Holy Spirit to either challenge us 
as sinners or challenging us as people who respond to sinners or just remind us of, of what we need to keep doing and how we need to keep living to, to get this right. That's, that's my challenge to you this morning. After this song, I'm going to come back and I'm going to pray, come back and I'm going to pray for, for all of us this morning. Lord Jesus, this morning, I pray that the words of that song would be our sincere prayer to you, that we would live to love you. And if we are to love you, we have to love the ones you love. And we know the ones you love. You love the very ones that are easier, easiest for us to avoid. You love the very ones that society tends to write off. You love the very ones that the church feels often are not worthy to be loved. So Lord, this morning as we stand here and declare our love for you, we know that we can't declare our love for you without loving those that you love. So we pray that you would help us. Lord, for those who are in this place this morning, we know that any of us could be brought to the front of this building and our sin be exposed and we could be embarrassed and humiliated. We're thankful that we don't have to endure that this morning. But as we stand before you, you see it all. You know it all and you love us just the same. And I pray for that one that might be here today that recognizes that it's time to walk a new road. It's time to surrender the sin in, in their lives. And it's time to, to walk a road where they're free and have life and relationship with Jesus. Lord, for that one who might be considering that this morning, we join our prayers for them, and I pray that you would give them the courage to make this decision that they need to make, to make it and to live it. God, for us, as we stand here today, as there are things in our lives that we know, perhaps they're not actions, maybe they're just attitudes, but whatever they are, Lord, whatever is in us that doesn't belong, that doesn't honor you, that doesn't align with who you are, your character and your work, Lord, would you forgive us? Would you take that from our lives this morning? So that we can be reminded that sin matters, but grace also matters. So, Lord, I pray that wherever we find ourselves and with to whomever we're interacting with, even if things about them are appalling to us, help us to see them not through the lens of sin, but help us to see them through the lens of love and grace and mercy and redemption. May our lives echo the words of Jesus, I didn't come to condemn you. I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And so, Father, we just give all this to you as we're, we're on this journey and we know that, that this whole attitude has haunted your people from the beginning and continues to hang over us. May we not be those whose role is condemnation but bringers of love and grace. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.